Good morning. I am someone. I'm going to keep doing that until we... Uh, sorry, in his defense, I think I'm going to stand in today. Uh, my name is Brian. I'll be... Uh, my goal today, and it's similar to Eric's, uh, is to read through the scripture with you. You can follow along on the screens um, in the YouVersion app um, in your scripture journal or lots of places. Bear with me because this one uh, is a page turner or a scroller, so I'll, I may have a, a brief pause in the middle. Uh, we're reading from Hebrews 9, verse 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to, into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to his arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot be perfect, sorry, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Thanks, Brian. Excited to be with you this morning and continue in our uh, series for the better. And this morning, uh, the message title is Better Worship. Better Worship. Um, I don't pretend to assume that everyone in the room has learned how to ride a bike. Um, but if you have learned how to ride a bike, a two-wheel bike, if you haven't learned how to ride a tricycle, different conversation entirely, and uh, you can talk to somebody about your issues. But um, if, uh, if you've ever learned to ride a two-wheel bicycle, it's quite the endeavor, um, especially depending on the age in which you attempted to learn it. I'm the second of three children, and so I got a front row seat to watching my older sister attempt to learn how to ride a bicycle. And it was... Um, it was a virtual bloodbath, if I'm honest. Uh, we had a long driveway, and it was a series of my dad uh, holding the seat and running alongside her and then getting to a place where he lets go and her just toppling down and falling and screaming and asking, why would you let me go? Don't you love me? You know. And, um, and so then it was my turn to learn to ride a bike, and I thought, this is going to be devastating. And uh, so I get on the bicycle, and my dad realized that obviously we're all wired differently uh, as his kids. And so uh, I look at him and I say, don't let go of the seat until I tell you to, okay? And he's like, okay. And I was like, no, I mean like for real, I'll tell you when I'm ready, just don't let it go until I'm ready. He's like, okay. And I get in, the, I get in my bike, I'm like, he's going to let it go, like, that's what he did to Valerie. He's just gonna, he's gonna let it go because he's gonna think he's helping me, but I'm gonna die right here in the driveway. And so I start riding my bicycle, I start going along, and all of a sudden I start thinking, he's let go. Even though I told him not to, he's let go. So I'm like, are you still holding on? He's like, yes, I'm holding on. And so like uh, a 
kid that doesn't fully trust their father, I decide that I'm going to check. And so I'm riding like this, and I check, and when, of course, you check and you don't really know how to ride a bike yet, your hands move with it, and so I turn the wheel sideways, flip over the bike, and just fall on the ground. And as, as I fall over the front, my dad's holding onto the seat, and he kind of catches the bike. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, I just want to make sure you're still holding on. He's like, well, was I? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I told you I'm not going to let go until you tell me to let go. I'm like, all right. See, you know, so I get on the, the bike again and I'm kind of brushing myself off, picking little stones out of my elbows and hands and I get back on and I'm like, don't let go. He's like, I'm not going to. Why are you so paranoid? I was like, cause you let go with Valerie. He's like, she never asked me to, to wait. I was like, all right, all right. So I start riding, go a little bit further. And of course, are you holding on? Yes, I'm holding on. And so I check, and I try this time to not do this, but I do. And so instead of flipping over this time, the bike just leans to the side, and he kind of catches me. He's like, son, what are you doing? I was like, it just, I want to see that you're still holding on. He's like, I'm holding on until you tell me not to. This continued several times. I won't bore you with how many times it happened, but I almost fell off the bike several times simply because I didn't believe that he wouldn't let go until I told him to. I just needed to see it. Like, I needed to see that I could trust him. Sounds weird, right? See that I can trust him? And so we're going along, and he's like, have you got it? And I was like, yeah, I got it. You can let go. He's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, 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 let go. So he lets go. I go, did you let go? He's like, yes, I let go. You're doing it. And I go, really? (laughs) And just flip off my bike. He did let go. I was riding my bike. It was ridiculous, right? Why? Here's the question for this morning. Why is it that seeing is believing? Why is it that seeing is believing? No matter how much we want to trust in the moment, no matter how much we're even excited about the victory of the moment, we still have to see it. Like, I just got to make sure. Did this really happen? Why is it that seeing is believing? I think there's a a lot of layers to this question, if I'm honest. I want to submit to you this morning that ultimately seeing is believing because we have trust issues. All of us have trust issues. Now, they're in varying degrees. You might say, well, I'm a pretty trusting person. You're a pretty trusting person, but you still have trust issues. Like, it's innate within our hearts and minds as as human beings. It seems as little kids, simpler times, you know, if you think about it, you're like, man, I just wish... I knew, and it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, there's always a younger version you look back to fondly. Like, oh, if I could just go back to that time. Like, if I just realized how good I had it in college, you know, oh my gosh. Or if you're in college, like, oh, if only I realized how good I had it when I was in high school and high school, elementary, and the list goes on. We always are like, oh, it's just a simpler time. Well, if you think back to childhood when you were really, really little, like, pre-two-wheeler time, really little. You were willing to believe almost anything, right? It's bizarre to me. I'm amazed at what I used to believe, the things that I would just take at face value. Somebody said it. If they were older than me, I was like, that's incredible. I did not realize there was a literal pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Why do we not find the end of that rainbow? <laughs> like, well, it's really hard to find. I'm like, I can see the end right there. It's in my yard. If we just go there, there's a pot of gold. What are these things called leprechauns? You know, like, it's absurd. (laughs) The things that we just readily believe. I just cherry-picked one idea. I could fill the room with absurd things that we believed throughout our childhood because just there was this willingness, this desire 
to kind of trust, open hands, open mind. We would believe things no matter how outlandish. And I'm amazed as I have uh, three children how quickly I could accidentally do damage in the early years of their life. Because I just joke around from time to time and I would say something absurd and all of a sudden I look at their little faces like, really, Dad? Like, no, I, I didn't used to fly. No, sorry. Like, oh my gosh, what have, what have I done to them, you know? Like, I would just make up ridiculous things and, and just this, wait, did that really happen? Like, no. So even if you can't remember the times that you just willingly believed anything, you can certainly remember encounters with your children or other people's children and, and realize just the, the openness and the willingness to just trust. It's almost a glimpse of what it is that we read in Scripture about coming to Jesus as a little child, to have childlike faith, this idea of faith and trust with no no um, I don't have it in my notes, so I can't remember what I'm trying to say. No preconceived ideas and uh, no, no hesitation in what it is that, that you're willing to believe. However, the fact is, it kind of changes, doesn't it? At some point in our lives, our willingness to believe almost anything that anyone says suddenly changes, and we go from willing to believe almost anything to inherently suspect of almost everything. Really? Are you sure? I'm not so sure. Something happens. In fact, I think our willingness and even our capacity to believe something that we ourselves have not seen is in direct correlation to how much we trust the person telling us. Like if some random person just tells you something even a little bit outlandish or a little bit crazy, you think there's no way that happened. But if you trust that person, there's a willingness to maybe consider no matter how absurd it sounds, that maybe just maybe that might be true. But that's not really the whole equation, is it? We're way more complex than that as human beings. You may really trust the person telling you something, but you might also have a history of others having violated your trust. And so you hesitate. The person you trust bears the consequences of the people that have hurt you in the past. So now you're, you're hesitant to trust even those closest to you with what it is that they're saying because of the history of hurt. You see, we're, we're really complex. So there are a lot of factors that feed into our willingness to believe something that we haven't seen, that we haven't seen with our very own eyes. And honestly, our current culture makes this even worse because with technology, everything can be altered. Like you can see something, you're like, whoa, that's incredible. And then as the video goes on, they start to show you how it is that they just completely deceived you through technology and how it never really happened. And you're like, oh my gosh, anything is possible. And so at the end of the day, it's just plain easier to believe only what you've seen firsthand and to be suspect of everything else. Believe only what you've seen firsthand and be suspect of everything else. If you think that doesn't affect or impact your faith journey, you're sadly mistaken. Because it has a direct impact in all of our faith journey, regardless of where we are in the midst of it. What's interesting is that if it's ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, if it's ultimately God that awakens our heart to the truth of the gospel, if it's ultimately a work of God that, that woos us to him, 
We aren't saying that we distrust a preacher or that we distrust a Christian friend or that we distrust Christendom as a whole or, or the system of a church or the brokenness of people or a friend that means well. When we come into situations where we struggle in our faith journey, no, what we're saying is we don't trust God. That's what we're saying in those moments. It's really easy to, to point a finger at a hurt or to try to shift some blame, but the reality is we're saying, I don't think I can trust a creator. I don't think I can trust God. Or you're saying, I think I trust myself more. Because here's the deal, I've lived a lot of years. I know the end of this situation. I get where this story's headed. I think I'm going to trust myself on this one. You see, it shouldn't be shocking or news to us when imperfect people make poor choices. It shouldn't be like this earth-shattering news when sinners sin. And yet, in some way, we allow moments of people being broken to shatter and shake the foundation of our own faith journey. Isn't that weird? It's like we literally give them authority to direct our capacity to have faith. To point fingers at people that have violated trust and, and yet we choose to allow them to have authority in our lives. Imagine going to a hospital. And as you can imagine, some of the stories I've shared, I've visited some hospitals in my day. <laughs> and it's literally like entering into a hospital and saying, I, I, can't, I can't have them work on me here. Why not? Because look at all the people hurting. Like, what do you mean? This is a hospital. Yeah, I know, but there's so many people hurting. I want to go to a hospital where everyone is well. That way, I know this hospital works. That's the way people view church. Look at all these people. They're broken. I just don't trust anything. They're broken. Well, are they in the process of healing? Yeah, but I want to go to a church where people are all healed. Wow. Have fun finding a hospital with no sick people. Because the reality is a hospital is for the broken, for the healing, for the people that come in and say, I need help. And I tell you, the church of Christ is for people that are broken, that are declaring, I need help and I need healing. And so to be in that place and to say, I've been hurt by people that are hurting, welcome to the world. It's just a reality of, of humanity. And so we can't point our finger and, and say, I don't trust God because of brokenness of people. No, what you're saying is I don't trust God. I don't trust God. Or I trust myself more. Our ability to trust God shouldn't be linked to a person who at any given day can misrepresent him. Listen, any given day, the best of us in this room are capable of misrepresenting God. The connection between trust and faith has existed since the beginning of humanity. And it's a concept that isn't exclusive to Christianity. As human beings, as people that breathe in and out of our lungs, Christian or not, we need to trust before we'll risk faith. And I realize we have people on all gamuts of the spiritual journey this morning. So the real question is, what or who do you really trust? What or who do you really trust? You see, some of us, we trust in good things, 
And in doing so, we make them ultimate things. We create idols out of our spouses. We create idols out of our jobs. We, we, we create idols out of monetary things because we say, listen, my trust is in my capacity to earn. My trust is in my capacity to be loved by this person. My trust, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have lots of them because they don't have a choice but to just love me back. And that's what I need because I am, whoo, love me, love me, love me. And then they turn 13. Because I've been 13, and you've been 13 for the people that are 13 or older. And you know what, it likes, what it's like to get to a place. and you can't, you can't try to find meaning and purpose in something that in itself is broken and searching. Who or what do you really trust? That's exactly what the Hebrew Christians were dealing with when they could see and touch the earthly tabernacle. They could see it the earthly priests, and in fact, they could take part in the process of bringing a sacrifice. There was something cathartic, if you can imagine. The idea that I've, I've done wrong, <clears throat> and in my moment of doing wrong, I can fix it myself. I mean, that feels good to a lot of us in the room. It's part of the reason why we try to modify our behavior, and we call it Christianity. But it's really just us fooling ourselves. It's because we want to try to work out our own salvation. And under the old covenant, there was a variation of that where when you realize the brokenness of your life, you could, you could feel the pain of a sacrifice taking a, a, either an animal from your herd or having to pay for an animal out of your treasure and say, listen, I've done wrong and now there has to be bloodshed and, and there's pain attached to it. But as you approach the temple, you can see everything. You can feel and touch and, and you see what's happening. And so the idea of a faith component, it simply, it simply wasn't necessary. So they were tempted. These Hebrew Christians, if you consider the context of what Hebrews was, the letter that was written, they're, they're tempted to return to the familiar, to the known, to that which they can see and touch. And all the while, they, their hearts have been awoken to the truth of the gospel, and, and they're, they're turning their, their back on the way that they've been raised, and there's a tension in their heart because of the sight and the smell and the sounds and the, the concreteness of behavior modification. It's like, listen, it kind of feels good when I feel a little pain associated with the wrong I've done. So verse 1, the author here says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthy, earthly place of holiness. Regulations for worship. This means is rules to engage God. The old covenant had rules to engage God. You know what's funny? That feels good to humanity. Us in this room, like, we like to think that there's rules to engage God. It's why maybe this morning you came to church, like, digging trenches with your heels, being like, if I go in there, the place will probably fall down. That always cracks me up when people say that. Like, if I went into a church, the place would probably collapse. Why? Like, what do you have planned? You know, but it's just the idea, like, I am so messy. Like, listen, I can't go to a hospital. I'm hurting. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, stay home. You know, like, but there's this, this idea, this process of a, there's got to be regulations for me. How about I just work out all the mess of my life and then I'll come to church. Then I'll present myself as holy. 
an earthly place of holiness. Let's consider the context a little bit as we move through the text in chunks so we can kind of understand it. Verses 2 through 5 actually give an explanation to the tabernacle layout. Actually goes through the motions of the way that the tabernacle was laid out, which curtain is placed where, what are the items that fill the tabernacle. It's stuff that explains what you can see, what it is that you experience, and why that it's there. And to the modern reader, there's a trapping if you're exegetically moving through the, the pericope, if you're, if you're unpacking the verse. If you, as you're unpacking the verse, there's a temptation to do this, to look at it and be like, hmm, interesting. What does that mean, Aaron? Hmm, I wonder what, it's made of gold, huh? Interesting. What are the implications into my life? What is the book of Hebrews really about? <laughs> but there's something very plain happening here. The reason why it's very plain is because the original readers already knew what was in the tabernacle. And this was written to the original readers. So why in the world is the author saying, so this is here, and this is here, and this is there. They're like, I know, I know. Why is it there? Let's move on. Verse 6 and 7. The author continues, and as the author continues, it's interesting because now the, the verses start to give explanation as to who will be present. A priest being present. The high priest. The way that it's laid out, the roles that they fill, and begin to explain their actions again Details that may be interesting to you and me, but stuff that the original readers already knew. Why is it here? I want to submit to you this morning, the reason why it's here is because they knew. It's because they knew. Bear with me a second. Imagine for a moment that you're in your most comfortable of clothing. Whatever that looks like. Sweatpants, whatever. Just picture it. And you're in the most comfortable spot in wherever it is you find comfort. So you're in the most comfortable spot in your room, in your living room, wherever it might be, a couch, a pillow, I don't know. But just picture yourself kind of cozying up, relaxed, and you can almost like feel the sun on your face or if it's dark or whatever, you enjoy the darkness and silence. I don't know, I know we have some introverts in here. They're like, I'm completely alone and I hear nothing and I love it. <laughs> Okay, so whatever it looks like, a prison cell, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but picture yourself for a moment in that place, that place that's familiar, that place that's known. And now, picture a bag of completely sealed Doritos. And listen, there's no American that doesn't love them some Doritos. If you don't love Doritos or you have a problem, we're going to have a separate altar call for you later. But just for a moment, just picture that Dorito bag, and it is full. And you are in your most comfortable spot, in your most comfortable clothing. And you can hear the crinkling of the bag. And it's one of those moments where it just opens perfectly. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're not fighting with it, but it's almost like, oh, there is a God, right? Like, it opened. It didn't even rip. And there's that moment where you smell that first waft of Doritos, right? Where it just kind of washes over you, and you're like, oh. Wait, did I go Little Mermaid? I wasn't trying to go Little Mermaid there. But whatever, you know, that moment where you almost hear angels singing, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in the most comfortable place in the most comfortable of clothing. And you reach in and you grab one chip and it's a whole chip. And I don't know how Doritos stay whole, but it's amazing. And if they could figure that out, why don't they make all the chips that way, right? Somehow they're the only chip that doesn't really break. And so you pull this ginormous Dorito out, you put it 
on your tongue, and you can taste it. Some of you right now are going to just blow up the vending machine in the hallway because you're like, now I need Doritos. You can taste it. You're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And in that moment, as you're swallowing that one chip, you go to put your hand back into the bag, and the door opens. And whoever it is that has authority in your life, a sibling, a brother, a parent, whatever it looks like, comes in and says, oh, that's actually my bag of chips, and takes them from you. It's horrifying, right? <laughs> Some, it's so funny. Some of you are like, what? We know that. We know the pain of not enough. We know the pain. Why? Because I took you on a journey of understanding what it is we all have in common, and you could feel it, and you could smell it, and you could sense it. And so you're there for a moment, and in the moment of being there, you feel the insufficiency of it being taken away. I want to tell you, the author of Hebrews is saying, you know the smells, you know what it is that you can touch, you know what it is that you can feel, you know what's there, you know the process, and you know it's insufficient. And so he goes on, or she goes on, and says, verses 8 through 10, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The author is saying, you know what it is that you can see and touch and feel, and it leaves you insufficient, empty, it doesn't deliver. The old covenant doesn't bring us into God's presence. The author realizes it. And that's the journey that they're on. Like, listen, does it deliver into bringing you into the presence of God? No. One time a year, the high priest on the day of atonement would have a right to go into the presence of God. That's it. That's it. But there's better worship. There's better worship. You see, under the Old Covenant, the tabernacle was central because it was where God dwelt, beyond the veil. Beyond the veil, God's presence would come and dwell on the mercy seat. But Jesus Christ, he lived the sinless life that you and I could not. And he died the death that we deserve. And when he hung on the cross, he declared that it was finished because he completed that which all the sacrifices could not complete. And in that moment, it's recorded in the Gospels that the veil in the tabernacle was torn in two from the top to the bottom, symbolically providing access for all of us to God. You see, because of the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, a central location of worship no longer exists. Listen, since the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ by faith, by faith, Christians can now worship in spirit and truth. The center of new covenant worship is not a place, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so we worship him why? Because we get what we want? 
because we're perfect and acceptable? No, because he's worthy. Because he's worthy of our worship. Worthy, literally meaning assigning worth. We assign worth to Jesus. Not because of our holiness, but because of who he is and what he's done. And here's the thing. If we choose, we bring a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice, but not for atonement for our sins. You see, Jesus already atoned for our sins. The sacrifice we bring, according to Scripture, is a sacrifice of praise. We bring a sacrifice of praise. Why? Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And so therefore, we come into God's presence and we sing songs of praise. Not because it's part of a church service or because it's required of us obligatorily, but because God has awoken our hearts and because of the sin and brokenness that we experienced and struggled with that he set us free from. Now we come with a sacrifice of praise and say, God, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, you're still worthy to be worshipped. We bring a sacrifice of our time. We say, listen, I, I could be doing other things, but God, I want to be present with you. I want to know you. I, I don't have to go somewhere and go through a process. I can kneel at my bed or in the brokenness after a meeting or in the stall of a bathroom with tears streaming down my face. And in those moments, I can enter into the very presence of God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I bring a sacrifice of my time. I bring a sacrifice of my talent. God, you've, you've gifted me. None of the gifts that we have are because of our own ability. It's the, the origin of our giftings are from God himself. And, and the word of God says that he empowers our giftings. So we can't take credit for anything. I mean, unless you're some narcissistic person trying to elevate yourself to God, you realize the, the reality of the fact that the, lung, the air in your lungs belongs to God himself. And so it's an act of worship to say, all that I am is yours, God. Would you take my talents and my gifts and, and use them for your glory? And listen, our, our talents and gifts, they, they can provide us a living on this earth, but if they're providing us a living and that's the end of the story, we are terribly abusing a gift that comes straight from God. But imagine if the people of God came together and realized that it was a sacrifice of praise to say, here's what I offer because we're a body. And so how can this be used? And, and let's do things that wow the world. One of the because and therefore's the center way is innovation. I want to encourage you to go to our website and read through our because and therefore. But we believe that things should be marked with beauty. How can we say that we're spirit-led and do just nasty, stupid, cheesy stuff? Quite honestly, I think people have a, a bad perspective of who God is and what the church is because we're not being actively spirit-led with the beauty in which we do things. Go outside and look around at the beauty of the universe. It's beautiful. A sunset. We say, listen, I'm spirit-led, but I do cheesy, stupid-looking stuff. What? There's something to God activating the way he's wired us that we would bring a sacrifice of, of our time and our talent and of our treasure. And listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to get your money. Like, it's, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying, if, if you don't realize that a response to what it is that God has done goes beyond simple song then you're not connecting the dots of the truth of the gospel. Because any money that you have, it's all his anyway. 
It's all his anyway. And so to, to bring a sacrifice of praise and to say, okay, God, here's the deal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage something that gives me a little bit of pain maybe because I had planned to buy this or to get that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it as a sacrifice of worship. The thing that's amazing time and time again within Scripture and in the lives and hearts of everyone in this room that has risked that, God multiplies it over and over again. And it's so funny because the, the secular world calls it philanthropy, right? It's like they have tapped into a God principle that if you don't allow money to grip you and you actually give part of it away, you actually get more money. It's a biblical principle that they fall into and they have gajillions of dollars. <laughs> but I want to tell you, that was weird. That's going to sound terrible on the podcast. <laughs> I, I hate it when I listen to myself just to like find things like, why did I go? <laughs> and he just had to say it. I have a little bit of ADD. If I don't say that the squirrel's in the room, I'll just keep thinking about it. So there you go. But we, we hold on to certain things. And there, there's certain things that's like, listen, hey, we can talk about this, but hey, don't talk about that. You talk about this, but whoa, 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 my time. Oh, my treasure. Whoa, what are you trying to get? I don't trust you. <laughs> but if it's living open-handed and not white-knuckled, but instead saying, okay, God, it's all yours. It's amazing how God brings joy and peace and the reality that we can be a part that we can partner with him in the redeeming process. We can partner with him in the redeeming process of this community and surrounding communities. Because he's worthy. That's why. Not building a church, but being the church. Because we've been transformed by the truth of the gospel. And so, everywhere we go is a tabernacle of praise. We often say here at Centerway that the text requires something from us. And so I want to challenge you as you consider how to connect the dots. What Hebrews 1 through 10 of chapter 9 look like in your life. I want to ask you a question. Something to consider as you apply. It's this. How will I worship God this week? How will I worship God this week? I want you to consider that. And, and the kids, the, the preaching and teaching team, we, we say this from time to time that we work together and so the kids are going through this as well and they're considering what it looks like for them to be worshipers at their young age. So maybe as a family, how, how will I worship God this week? For some of you in this room, maybe it's to surrender your life. You've been trying to be the God of your own life for so long and you've never really surrendered your one and only life to God. And so an act of worship is to lay your own agenda down and to say, okay, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. I'm sick of running on the hamster wheel and trying to fix it because I just end up right back where I started. God, would you do what only you can do? If that's you this morning and you're in this place and you haven't crossed that line of faith, I want to let you know it's as simple as praying a prayer in your seat. In the quietness of your mind right now, you can say, God, because of what it is that you did on a cross, because of the life you lived, would you forgive me for the sin of my life? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that easy. I'd love to talk to you about next steps, but if you want to begin the relationship, it starts there. And maybe that's your application this morning. For others of you, maybe your application is to sing a song with us. In a moment, we're going to respond to God in worship. And I know what it's like to be in a room with people and be like, what if other people hear me? <laughs> Dear God. But maybe for the first time, it looks like 
you singing a song of praise and connecting the words that are projected on the screen to your heart and life and ascribing worship to God. And so maybe how you will worship God this week is to engage in song. Maybe it looks like taking God risks with your time, with your talent, with your treasure. Does it look like leaning in in different ways, signing up for a serve at Center Way or whatever church you may be coming from? This isn't about, like I said, little C church, Center Way. I'm talking large church, big C, Christendom. What does it look like for you to lean in and say, listen, I'm going I'm to be there with my talent, my time, my treasure. I'm going to be all in to see what it is that God can only do when we put our hands in the circle. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and saying, listen, I've, I've crossed that line of faith and, and I really, truly give of my time, talent, and treasure and, and just am available to whatever it is that the Lord is calling me to do. And that's awesome. And I know there's several like that in the room. I want to challenge you because the text has application for every person here. I want to challenge you to consider deeper levels of engagement. What does it look like? What, what are the things that God has whispered in the quietness of your mind? Because we can keep the lights on. Like, we can do the Christian thing. Like, you know, I, hey, I went to church. Boom, I think I just raised my hands. That was crazy. I sang the song. I mean, I was mouthing it, but, you know, it was good enough. And I even gave some money, so check, check, check. Boom, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Like, and we can believe this lie that church is just about spiritual activity. Or we can have deeper levels of engagement and allow God to whisper things to our heart and mind that we say, man, what if we did this? What if we risked that? Hey, we've been talking as a family. What if this? Man, sometimes it's funny how people will say, like, I don't know if, if God is in it. I was like, well, is it sin? <laughs> it's amazing how some people are like, well, no. Is it sin? Well, no, it's not sin. Okay. Does it further God's kingdom? Yeah, it could. I don't think that comes from Satan. What are you doing about it? Uh, not much. We're still thinking about it. Why? Because it's scary. Because it involves trust. Because it involves faith. Because we can't see and touch and feel. And there's the known and that's the unknown. Listen. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit to stir our hearts, to stir our gifts, and to awaken our dreams, and to say, what if? What if? What if, what if we did that and, and God got the glory? Listen, Centerway began because of a group of people willing to say, what if? And it's not because of those people or to bring them any type of glory. It's to bring glory to Jesus Christ because the work of Centerway is not to establish a church in one community. It's to establish a church that reaches out and reaches into other communities and other places and continues to multiply for God's glory to come alongside the hurting and the broken. And so the future of what even Centerway looks like, I'm not sitting up here being like, listen, you should do risky things. But as for us, we'll see you here next Sunday. No, this is for all of us to lean in and say, what is it that God wants? Because I refuse to believe that Jesus died on a cross, laid down his one and only life, have victory over death and sin, and then said, now, just gather in rows on Sunday. 
listen to somebody, slam off some songs, drop a little change in the box, and boom, you're welcome. Like, no. No, but we've been lulled to sleep with the known, with the tried, with the expected, with the tabernacle that we come to and say, oh, I, I praise here. This is where I worship. We leave this place as worshipers. We're sent with the power of the Holy Spirit because of the work and person of Jesus Christ. We bring sacrifices of praise because of who he is. He's worthy of our praise. So let's bow our heads. You can close your eyes if you want, or you can keep your eyes open if you're going to get distracted. But With your head bowed at the very least, I want to challenge you to consider what are the implications in your life. How will you worship God this week? What needs to change? Maybe it means a conversation with a loved one, a parent, a friend, trusted friend, a spouse. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like, but if you're feeling stirred in your heart, that's that's something that the Holy Spirit is doing to awaken his people for his glory. we acted on the things God told us. Gosh, I want to I want to live my life being on the edge of what it is that God is whispering. I want to I want to end my life and have people be like, "Hey, you know, Claude at the ripe age of 120, dude, Played it safe, you know, every week, in and out, right to church and back again. There's something greater. There's better worship within us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we respond even now in worship. Even now through song, we worship you because you're worthy. And so maybe we get out of our comfort zone and, and sing a song or connect the dots. But Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds, that we would that we'd be challenged to not be lulled to sleep by the tried and the expected and the known, but to innovate because of your spirit, because of who you are, for your glory and our joy.